From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With broad access to vaccines, Governor Jared Polis says the medical emergency is over. That's despite a health care system stretched thin. People who want to be protected are. Those who get sick, it's almost entirely their own darn fault. I, I don't want to say that nobody gets ill who's been vaccinated, but it's very rare. Just to put it in perspective. Polis answers our questions and yours about masks, abortion access, and wildfires. Then the new star-studded satire, Don't Look Up, is about a comet hurtling towards Earth. The comet's a metaphor for climate change. We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. We meet the film's Denver co-writer... As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A slew of COVID-19 developments this week, which helped frame our regular interview with Governor Jared Polis. Early indications are that Omicron is very catchy, but maybe less pernicious than Delta. And while vaccinations continue to be the best protection, Pfizer and Moderna just aren't sure how well their shots will stand up to this new variant. COVID's just one of the topics we discussed Thursday with the governor. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. As you know, we often ask listeners to submit questions. And for the last few months, the majority ask why you won't impose a statewide mask mandate. Uh, This comes as we've recently seen a surge in cases and a shortage of hospital beds. So to make your position just crystal clear... Is there anything that would prompt you to return to a statewide order, or is that something you've just decided you aren't going to do at this point? Well, you know, our top goal is always to follow the science, and there was a time when there was no vaccine and masks were all we had, and we needed to wear them, and Colorado stepped up, which was great. The truth is we now have highly effective vaccines that work far better than masks. I mean, not even close. If if you wear a mask, it does decrease your risk of getting COVID, uh, and that's a good thing to do indoors around others. But if you get COVID and you are still unvaccinated, the case is just as bad as if you were not wearing a mask. So it's a different place. Everybody's had more than enough opportunity to get vaccinated. I think hopefully it's been at your pharmacy, your grocery store, a bus near you, big event. Um, at this point, if you haven't been vaccinated, it's really your own darn fault. I just want to point out, it's just about a year since the first doses of vaccine arrived in Colorado. But again, crystal clarity is my goal here. You see the arrival of the vaccine as the end of mask mandates statewide. That's your position. Well, we see it as the end of the the medical emergency, frankly. People who want to be protected are. Those who get sick, it's almost entirely their own darn fault. I I don't want to say that nobody gets ill who's been vaccinated, but it's very rare. Just to put it in perspective, uh, about 1,400 people hospitalized, less than 200 or 16% are 
vaccinated, and, and many of them are older or of other conditions, 84% of the people in our hospitals are unvaccinated. And they absolutely had every chance to get vaccinated, right? Uh, we're not talking about, oh, you know, there's a month to get vaccinated and then people aren't wearing masks anymore. I mean, we're talking, as you indicated, a year since the vaccines came. Everybody's had the chance to get vaccinated. And at this point, I think it's almost like they made a deliberate decision not to get vaccinated. And I still encourage everybody who hasn't been vaccinated to, to get protected. And for those who are, uh, make sure to get that booster after six months. The data shows it's important and uh, very likely even more so with this Omicron variant. And with that variant, which, as I said, seems to spread quite easily, that does not change your mind about a mask mandate. No, not in, in and of itself, okay. Ryan. The, the okay. data that we have so far shows that the vaccines do hold up well against the Omicron variant. Uh, obviously, if that changes, we want to look at what other techniques we could use to reduce the spread of the virus. But so far, from what we know, and obviously there's always new science, and as a student of science, I'm meeting studies you know, almost every night, uh, uh, you know, all the studies that come out that day on this. Of course, we want to see what new information emerges about the Omicron variant and how well vaccine and natural immunity hold up to it. I'm going to just finish this line of questioning by invoking the voice of a healthcare worker. So one comment we got on Twitter was from a nurse. She asked not to be identified because she says when she uses her name on social media, she's harassed by people who blame healthcare workers in part for the pandemic. But here's what she wrote. Ask the governor why I'm sitting in a Denver County gym that is full and I'm literally the only one wearing a mask. This after approximately my 470th day working on a COVID unit. Mask mandate now, this person says. So she wants the full faith and credit of a statewide mandate. And I know you've said that vaccines make masks less relevant. But, you know, public health officials talk about the Swiss cheese model to fighting COVID, which is that no one solution is a silver bullet and that masks and vaccines ought to go hand in hand. I want you, before we move on to another topic, to speak directly to her exhausted in a COVID unit. Well, thank you to all of our, our healthcare heroes. This has been an extraordinary two years. We support you. We, we have your back. We're doing everything we can to add hospital beds if needed augment the staff, FEMA staff in some cases, so the folks can take their breaks and, and take their days off. You know, I think that it's important that we really elevate all of our nurses, our public health officials who've risen to this occasion over the last few years and continue to, because we're certainly not through this yet, and express our profound gratitude. Because there's those that, uh, that don't, as she indicated, that she sounds like she has some hostile people who, you know, tweet at her or who, who respond to her or blame her. And, and, and that's not how most Coloradans feel. I want to make sure she knows that. Most Coloradans have a profound sense of gratitude for the work of our healthcare workers. Uh, it's lovely of you to celebrate a healthcare worker, but if you'll address the meat of her concern, which is that if you're going to do everything in your power, make masks mandatory statewide. That's the kind of thing that I'd never, I didn't hesitate to do in the emergency. Um, the emergency is over. So, you know, public health doesn't get to tell people what to wear. I mean, that's that's just, you know, <laughs> that's just not their job. Uh, I think it's great to wear a mask indoors around others. But, you know, when, when you're not in an emergency uh, situation, um, you, public health would say always wear a mask because it always decreases flu. It always decreases anything. Um, but that's, you know, not something that you require. You don't tell people what to wear. You don't tell people to wear a jacket when they go out in the winter and force them to. If they get frostbite, it's their own darn fault. 
you haven't been vaccinated, um, that's your choice. I respect that. But it's your fault when you're in the hospital with COVID. A man named Harold Birch, who lives in Delta, recently spoke with our healthcare reporter, John Daly. And when Birch had intense stomach pain recently, the doctor said he would normally have sent him to the nearest hospital, but it was full and he'd probably have to wait hours in the ER with people who had the flu or COVID symptoms. So Birch, who underscores that he is vaccinated, is staying home. It's really frustrating because I did the right thing like so many other people have. And we're being just kind of like told, you know, well, unless you have a really serious problem, like a heart attack, a stroke, you're going to have a baby or, you know, something like that. You know, we really, we don't have time to mess with you. What do you think when you hear a story like that about someone not exactly turned away, but told not wise for you to go to the hospital at this point because of capacity? So first of all, people should know that the Delta variant is not named after Delta, Colorado. I want to correct, you know, make sure people know that right off the bat. Second of all, wait, do and, people and think that? It, do people think that? Uh, I've, I've heard it a number of times. Oh, Ryan, so okay. I, I, it's, it's, it's important to, to make that clear. It's the Greek letter Delta, not the town of Delta in Colorado or Delta County. You know, and I've said this several times during the pandemic, because this became a problem. It was a worse problem probably a, a year ago. People were being deterred from their normal health care needs because they were worried about going out, worried about contracting COVID, you know, thought other people needed it more. Here's the most important advice I can give to my fellow Coloradans. If you are suffering from something that you would have sought out emergency medical treatment in 2018 or 2019 before you heard of COVID, before anybody knew about it, you should seek it out today for the same reason. Do not defer your health care needs because you think, you know, it's not as important as something else. Uh, the truth is uh, our hospitals are at, you know, 92, 93 percent capacity. That's not 105 percent. That's not 100 percent. But it's also not the 80 or 85 percent that we, we might normally be at. It gets higher sometimes in flu season. But if you have any type of condition where you would have sought out emergency care, pains in the chest, whatever it is, before the world heard of COVID, you absolutely should seek out uh, emergency care right now. So you think in that case, Birch and perhaps his healthcare advisor made the wrong choice there? Absolutely. I would give him opposite advice. I would say if you, you know, and I don't know the specifics of what he shared with mm. his advisor, right? So maybe his advisor in a nice way was saying you don't need to go to the, you know, the emergency room. But what I would say is don't let this pandemic affect your decision to get emergency health care. If it's something that you would have gone in for in 2019, it's something you should go in for today. We have talked about those who remain unvaccinated. There are a whole host of reasons. Misinformation being one of them. Uh, nearly two years into the pandemic, do you have any better sense of how to fight it? It's, it's uh, a lot larger than, than you and me, Ryan. I mean, you've, you've worked tirelessly, as have many members of the Colorado media, to get good information out. I, I certainly feel that I've burned the candle of both ends to do that with social media and press conferences and everything else. But the truth is there's this alternate misinformation universe. Um, there's people that believe you and I are part of some massive conspiracy, Ryan, um, and they probably tweeted you and they tweeted me too. Some of them believe there is no COVID. Some of them believe the vaccine doesn't work. Some of them believe that the vaccine has severe side effects. And the truth is they're in their own bubble and, and it's very hard to penetrate. And what I always encourage people to do is just take a step back. If you can, just take a step back. Look at this like you're looking at it for the first time. Look at the data. 
you know, like right here in Colorado, 1,232 people who are unvaccinated in the hospital, only 219 that are vaccinated. The vaccine works very well. Sure, you might, just like any vaccine, you might have a headache or a sore arm the next day, but, but nothing worse than that. And it's the most effective tool we have uh, to protect you from the virus. Governor Jared Polis joins us for our regular conversation. After the first airing of this interview, his office sent a press release. I'm going to read it in full. Governor Polis has been an outspoken supporter of the freedom and local control we deserve, and he respects local public health's ability to make decisions that will protect their communities from the spread of COVID-19 because they understand the needs in their communities. In recent remarks to CPR, he indicated that it is not the role of the state public health department to tell people what to wear. He wanted to be clear that he was referring to the state role because that word was not formally included in the remarks and wasn't clear enough from the context. Of course, he believes that local leaders can and should put disease reduction protocols in place based off their disease levels and community support for those policies. The release goes on to say, overall, the governor believes the best and most impactful way to protect yourself against COVID-19 is to get the safe and effective vaccine and to get boosted. And he continues to encourage Coloradans to wear masks indoors and avoid large gatherings. All right, back now to our regular conversation with Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis, recorded Thursday. I want to ask you now about an important case the U.S. Supreme Court is considering. It could weaken or even end Roe v. Wade, leaving states then to decide how to regulate abortion. In Colorado, abortion is not a crime, but there isn't precise language that legalizes it either. A group of lawmakers is planning a bill to specifically state that abortion is legal here, perhaps including protections for other reproductive rights. Do you support the fundamental idea of enshrining abortion access into state law? Well, I haven't seen any particular, you know, bills that you're talking about. And I know, I know that that bill isn't drafted, court. but it's the fundamental idea yeah. uh, well, whether well, that should I mean, be. Involved. Fundamentally, uh, no secret, I'm pro-choice, and I believe a woman should be able to have control over their own reproductive decisions and fully, and, and that's something I support. Whether that is, you know, now you're getting into is that a court precedent or is it a law or what, you know, the state is a federal, but I want to, to do whatever I can to protect a woman's right to choose. So you would be inclined to sign a bill in general that specified that abortion is legal in Colorado? Well, abortion is legal in Colorado. That's the case. But in, um, enshrining. You know, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get to sign bills in general, Ryan. I, I, I sign specific bills that say something. And so, you know, I, never, I can never comment on a bill that hasn't been written or that I haven't seen. But I want everybody to know that, of course, I protect a woman's right to choose. And however that is done, if court precedents are not enough, if there's laws that are needed, of course, I'm open to that discussion. Wildfires now. Uh, as you know, there were two of those in the mountains west of Denver just the first weekend in December. Here's a listener question about that. This is Matt Speth from Denver, Colorado. CPR recently ran a story about Colorado's investigation into wildfires. Colorado has worse outcomes when determining wildfire causes than other western states. With increases in size and severity of wildfires in Colorado, and increases in both the state's population and the amount of people recreating in national forests. What is the governor's plan to protect Colorado's natural places and its people from wildfires? 
There are really two issues there, Governor. Let's start with that CPR reporting Matt mentioned about how Colorado investigates wildfires. The state indeed has the worst rate in the western U.S. for determining how human-caused fires came about. Experts say the reason that matters is because if you can track the causes of fires and analyze the data, you can be better at prevention. What can the state do to better investigate fires? So, and and the two questions are somewhat related, Ryan. Certainly investigating the fire after it occurred, the desired outcome is preventing it from occurring in the first place. Now, we do want to hold anybody accountable, and in many cases they're accidental, but still we want to have that data. Uh, The state only has one full-time fire investigator. There's also a canine unit that has that capability assigned to it. And the truth is the state doesn't even only have that jurisdiction on state fires that have been elevated at the state. The first line is always the local law enforcement. And we do have four additional certified wildland fire uh, investigators and two certified structure fire investigators. But they do need to be called in by the local jurisdictions and, and asked to help. I think we have to have a real conversation about what resources are needed given the numbers of fires we're having and the increased incidents at both the local level and the state level to hold people accountable, obviously, for the small minority of fires that are deliberately started, but also use the information from the larger number of fires that accidentally started to institute better practices in both buildings and uh, in, in, in camping areas and other areas to prevent additional fires from starting. So that's a conversation you want to have, but is there any specific uh, source of funding or maybe collaboration with the federal government, given well, I, I think what I what I meant, you know, said it as if, if more funding is needed, of course, I'd, I'd support that. Absolutely. So we just have to see the, the, the caseload that people have and can adequately investigate. Uh, we need to see, you know, make sure that we have the ability to follow up on every fire that the state is asked to assist with. And then, of course, uh, we have to make sure and, and get a sense of what the, the varying degree of kind of local capabilities are in different cities and, and counties across the state. Some are more able to do those investigations than others. Is this something that you're looking into after hearing the CPR investigation? Uh, yeah, that was, I think, a good uh, eye-opener with regard to um, making sure the state has the investigative I think the only piece that it was kind of missing, Ryan, is that the local uh, governments are the, the frontline investigator. The state only comes in kind of when asked on these fires that are elevated. We should be able to have more supplemental ability, but I think it's also important to have that conversation and see what we even have, what your city has and what your county has, which is always the first line, just like it is in any crime, if you will, um, before the state is brought in. And to the second part of Matt's question, what's your plan to protect Colorado from wildfires or reduce their impact going forward? You mentioned, for instance, building codes. Uh, What movement might you like to see there or in other arenas? Yeah. So in the last legislative session, we were able to get record investments uh, directed towards fire prevention, mitigation and firefighting, the purchase of a um, Firehawk helicopter, which we should have in the next year, early interdiction. We announced six and a half million in grants, 42 applicants across 25 counties to boost wildfire mitigation efforts, often including building defense perimeters and additional work. We also uh, enable uh, inmates with fire service experience to be able to work uh, and get compensated and work details and get a job when they get out. So there's kind of a broad range of approaches, both investment, uh, workforce issues, uh, training, to really up our game for two reasons that we're facing increased fire risk, Ryan, and and they're both likely to continue. One is climate change. Uh, The second is increased population and usage. 
of wildland urban interface areas. So those are the two reasons we expect both trends to continue and the state needs to get ahead of the curve on response. There is a flood of new transportation money from the federal government and from the state. The Colorado Transportation Commission will vote soon on a new rule that looks to cut greenhouse gas emissions by changing the kinds of projects the state pays for. So, like, if a new road is going to bring new traffic and new pollution, for example, cleaner projects, including transit, might have to be built to offset that. Uh, The key question this poses is whether to keep funding highways and highway expansion when that almost always leads to more cars on the road. Fundamentally, Governor, can the state keep building roads and meet its climate goals? And if so, how? So, you know, how we get places is a key part of achieving our climate goals. Now, first and foremost, we are one of the leaders in electrification of our vehicle fleet, electric vehicles. In fact, for October, last month it's been reported, 9% of vehicles sold in Colorado uh, were electric vehicles, right? So it's rapidly increasing. That's a 50% increase from the year before. Uh, We hope to accelerate that even more. Uh, with some of our clean air investments, including electrifying school buses and additional support for people that want to switch over to e-bikes and other uh, more uh, efficient ways of, of getting to and from work or play. Now, your question about how we look at new road projects is uh, a good one. And I think that the path the Department of Transportation and the Transportation Commission is taking is a good response to those concerns. Because what they're saying is, look, if, in fact, this particular project or that particular project leads to Uh, additional vehicle miles traveled, uh, how can we make sure that we also mitigate that impact and actually improve our overall air quality and reduce our overall carbon emissions? What transit option or bike lane option fits with a project that in and of itself might not decrease vehicle miles traveled? Are you saying that there need to be fewer vehicles on the road overall? I mean, I know that electrification is an important avenue for you. No, yeah, no, I, 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 electric vehicles are, are great. I, I want them to be a higher percentage, and they are every year of vehicles that are there. Um, and, I, and people should know this. They draw power from the grid, which will be 80% renewable by 2030. But even if you had a grid that was heavily reliant on coal, and we still do rely on coal for part of our grid, uh, that is a far, 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 far more efficient uh, way of converting fossil fuel into energy than a, a distributed, you know, internal combustion engine in a car. So uh, even with the grid is today, electric vehicles fully loaded with all of their emission costs uh, are going to have, you know, 20% or less of the total of emissions of a, of a gas vehicle with an internal combustion engine. But are you saying that you want, is any part of your approach to climate change getting fewer people to drive, no matter the type of car? Uh, well, if, if people drive electric vehicles, that is a, a priority in transportation. We certainly want to make sure there's more options available, and that's a big part of our Main Street investments, uh, the support for e-bikes, this particular uh, decision item for the Transportation Commission, meaning how can we make sure that we are transit-friendly for people who live three miles from work and want to bike uh, when, when the weather's good? Let's make sure that's a possibility, right? For people uh, who want to have, uh, we want to have bus lanes and bus rapid transit available where it's possible. Uh, how can we make our towns more pedestrian-friendly, scooter-friendly? Uh, we've pushed out about $40 million in Main Street investments. I was in Glenwood Springs uh, just a couple days ago announcing the Devereaux Trail connection between their downtown area and some of their retail areas. So if we 
can make our downtown areas, our commuting routes, pedestrian-friendly, bike-friendly, transit-friendly. Um, there's a lot of folks who want to utilize those options to get to work in a more efficient way and a less costly way. More than a dozen teenagers were shot in Aurora in a matter of days around Thanksgiving. Governor, I know Mayor Mike Kaufman in Aurora has asked you for some statewide help in addressing youth violence in his community. Uh, are you going to give it to him? And what might it look like? Well, I, I don't know what that specific request is. They've not requested help on the investigative or law enforcement side. This has been a, a, a really um, sad few weeks. And, and um, uh, so far, it's my understanding that the victims are, are recovering, but, but some of them, their lives will be affected. They'll be unable to play high school sports, and they will have some degree of disability throughout their lives. Um, it's one of the reasons that uh, we are proposing a record size investment in public safety, including youth diversion as part of that, um, and initiatives to reduce recidivism and improve uh, our public safety workforce and the responsiveness of that workforce. Crime is a, a problem that needs to be addressed, both at the local level and by the state legislature. And the state needs to have skin in the game to help make sure the people of Colorado know that we're doing everything we can to reduce crime and improve public safety. There are a lot of investments in your proposed budget in prevention strategies, $48 million, for instance, for behavioral health initiatives, millions for prevention programs in schools. But critics say that approach just isn't strong enough, given crime trends, that there should be more emphasis on hiring cops, increasing enforcement. Basically, the idea uh, that they propose is you need to take the bad guy off the street. What's your response? Yes, and yes, it's, it's all of the above, right? The best way to prevent a crime is before it occurs, and that means there's no victim. Um, of course, holding somebody, a perpetrator of a crime, accountable after the fact also extremely important, keeping them off the street so they can't commit another crime. And but do your, do your investments side, reflect that? Yes. Uh, yes, it includes uh, helping with recruiting, uh, retention of law enforcement to make sure that we can recruit and improve quality of our officers of the peace, our police and sheriff's deputies, increasing the size of the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, uh, as well as the state forensic lag to be able to turn on evidence quicker and, and get convictions. Those are all part of our proposed investment. Governor, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Governor Jared Polis joining us by phone Thursday. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with climate change satire. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The new film, Don't Look Up, is a scathing satire about people's response to climate change, except a comet hurtling towards Earth stands in for global warming. Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence play the astronomers who discover it. Meryl Streep is the U.S. president who can barely be bothered for a briefing. Her son, played by Jonah Hill, is chief of staff. 
and using Gauss's method of orbital determination and the average astrometric uncertainty of 0.04 arc seconds. We, we then asked... Whoa, them, whoa, 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 what the I'm hell is so what? bored. Just tell us what, what? it is. What? Seriously, stop. Stop what? What Dr. Mindy is trying to say is that there's a comet headed directly towards Earth. And according to NASA's computers, that object is going to hit the Pacific Ocean at 62 miles due west off the coast of Chile. And then what happens? Like a tidal wave? No. It will be far more catastrophic. There will, there will be mile-high tsunamis fanning out all across the globe. If this comet makes impact, it will have the power of, of, of a billion Hiroshima bombs. There will be magnitude 10 or 11 earthquakes. You're, you're breathing weird. It's, it's, uh, it's making me uncomfortable. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to articulate the science. I know, but it's like so stressful. I like trying to like listen. I don't to what... think you understand the gravity of the situation. <laughs> you're breathing weird. The writers of Don't Look Up, including Denver journalist David Sirota, do not imagine that this global event brings humanity together. In the film, there's widespread skepticism of the science, a tech mogul tries to make money off the whole thing, and members of the media downplay the seriousness to keep their shows light and fluffy. And David Sirota, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Why a comedy? Well, I, you know, it's a very serious topic, and it's, it's, a, it's a disturbing topic. And there's, there's a way to discuss that topic uh, in a way where we can at, at once laugh at ourselves, but also realize uh, that we sometimes try to distract ourselves from real, basic, scientific truths that are uncomfortable uh, and troubling. And so part of the trick, I think, of this movie is to uh, use comedy uh, to raise really deep questions about whether we as a society are willing uh, to process uh, and constructively act on facts that make us uncomfortable. There's a lot of laughs in this movie, yeah. but this movie delivers a really important message. Indeed, some laugh-out-loud moments. The president complains how terrible the comet's timing is coming around the midterms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, contributors to her campaign get access to the war room if they are donors at the Platinum Eagle level. <laughs> you know, I don't think that the words climate change are ever uttered in the film. In fact, I watched it and thought, gosh, this also makes a commentary potentially on the science around COVID-19 and whether that is trusted. So uh, is it sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge that this is a climate change film? Well, I think you're speaking to the to the deeper issue here, which is some people have said, is this this is a movie about climate change? And certainly there's messages on that. Some people have asked, is this a, me a set of messages about the pandemic and our, our, our debate about science? And I think it's actually a, a movie about how we communicate with each other. Uh, the question that this movie asks is, are we as a society able to process basic facts and constructively act on those facts? Or... Are those facts always going to be cannon fodder in a culture war, in a partisan war, in a media war? And I, I want to live in a, in a world where basic facts are assessed on their merits and we as a society act on those facts to try to solve problems. But I think we all realize that we, we do live in a world now where every single fact uh, becomes a way to argue for our side or feel like part of one political tribe or the other mm. or to really uh, uh, 
make a point or nail our opponents. And what we need to do now uh, on so many of these crises is step back from that desire to fight with one another uh, and to actually try to stipulate some basic facts. But that's not where we are right now. And I think this movie tries to spotlight that deeper problem on every issue. The movie is Don't Look Up, and the director, Adam McKay, is behind comedies like Anchorman and Talladega Nights and political comedies like The Big Short and Vice. What kind of opportunity did you have to collaborate with Adam? Well, I've known Adam for a long time because of his he's a politically engaged. I'm a political journalist. I've known him for a long time. And and the way this really started was I said after Vice, I said to him, listen, you got to use your superpowers of comedy and and brilliance uh, for something uh, on the climate crisis. Hmm. And he said, yeah, I know. I I just I I don't want to do a kind of post-apocalyptic Mad Max kind of production. And we were spitballing ideas. And at one point I had said, you know, it's kind of like an asteroid's headed towards Earth and, and nobody cares. And he said, you know, I maybe that's actually the movie. And <laughs> I, I kind of eye rolled and said, yeah, I mean, come on, really? And then we started spitballing a little bit more. And he said, I think we're going to do it. And, oh, we've got the Leonardo DiCaprio's interested and Jennifer Lawrence is interested. And I was like, yeah, sure, this is going to be made. And finally, he's like, we're sending over the paperwork. This is actually getting done. And what I think is amazing about that is that it's not easy to get a movie made in general, and it's really not easy to get a movie like this made. I mean, Hollywood is known as a supposedly liberal place, but it really isn't. A, it's a big business. It's not a place that necessarily is so eager to produce things that uh, challenge power, that really question the status quo. So the fact that McKay and all of the stars in this movie were willing to uh, use their platform to try to uh, grab the world by the lapels and say, we have got to fix this problem. I see that as something to really be excited about, to really be uh, proud of, and to really applaud. I mean, just to add to the list of stars, Timothy Chalamet, Ariana Grande, and, you know, I mentioned that this is a somewhat stinging commentary of the news media, television in particular, Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett play prominent co-anchors of a show called The Daily Rip. How big is this thing? Could it like destroy someone's house? Is that possible? It's somewhere between six and nine kilometers across. So it's big. It would damage the the entire planet, not just a house, you know. The entire planet. Okay, well, as it's damaging, will it hit this one house in particular that's right on the coast of New Jersey? It's my ex-wife's house. I need it to be hit. Can oh, we make that you, happen? You and Shelly have a great relationship. No, you stop. Listen, in all fairness... You fa- need to stop. I will, but in all fairness, gonna, I actually paid for the house. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Are we, uh, are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right. It helps the medicine go down. It helps the medicine go down. Uh, David Sirota, how much does your own experience as a journalist inform a scene like that? Uh, a lot. I mean, I, I look, I, I do a lot of reporting on very serious uh, topics, uh, you know, about government, about politics. Uh, and look, you put out reporting into a world that often frivolizes everything and it can as a journalist it can drive you crazy and i'm sure people listening to this it drives them crazy that 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 
serious news often gets buried by the more fun, light stuff that distracts us. But I think when we look at crises as serious as climate change, we have to be willing to, in the in the words of the movie, we have to actually be willing to look up. We shouldn't avert our eyes. And my the hope is, is that this movie uses the techniques of a big blockbuster movie, a big blockbuster comedy to both uh, provide an entertaining and enjoyable experience, but also one that makes people ask questions about what we can do in all of our communities to 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 fix all of the crises in front of us. Uh, as I said, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a scientist who helps discover this comet. He's also a producer of Don't Look Up. And at one point, uh, DiCaprio's character has an on-air meltdown. I mean, he's just had it with humanity's stupidity. And David, it reminded me of this famous scene from another movie, 1976's Network. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. It's funny to listen to that clip in the context of everything going on today. But was that an inspiration, David Sirona? Uh, look, Network is one of the most amazing movies ever made, and that is is one of the most iconic speeches that's ever been in, in a movie. And I think that, in a sense, uh, there is a, a scene in the movie that that essentially references that or rhymes with that. Uh, and and I think that what we're actually saying in this movie is that people's feelings of um, of uh, of disillusionment are real. They are legitimate. Uh, they they are are righteous, uh, and that we need to actually uh, uh, understand uh, why we feel this way and actually try to take action. I mean, you are not crazy for thinking that uh, for for being upset that so much of our political discourse, our media discourse isn't focused on the real issues of the day. You are not alone. Uh, you are not wrong to feel that way. Uh, and now the question is, as we move forward into into even more intense crises, what can we actually do about it? And my hope is, is that this movie makes us all think about what we can do in our own lives and collectively together as a society uh, to actually make real positive change on so many things. And, and I want to make one more point here. Yeah. One of the things in that speech that, that you'll see in the movie that Leo makes that's that's like that that speech you just said is that these are problems that we can fix if we act now, that the asteroid is headed towards Earth. And there's a point that is made in the movie that says we could have averted, we can avert the asteroid uh, if we act soon. We can fix, we can still combat climate change if we act now. The danger is to continue distracting ourselves. And I hope that's what this movie leaves people with, that message. David Sirota, the journalist from Denver, joins us. He's also a screenwriter. 
co-writing Don't Look Up, which is playing in select theaters and will soon stream on Netflix. The film is packed with astronomy and rocket science, and it made me wonder if you're a space nerd at all. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, the, one of the best parts of this movie has been it wasn't just the first movie I worked on. It's not just a movie with an important message. I am, and folks who know me know that me and, and my son and my daughter, we love our telescope. We love space. And so be, being able to to, to be, work on a movie that also is about space, and at the premiere, I got to meet an astronaut and, and, and NASA scientists. I mean, that has been a true uh, pleasure of this movie. What do you think of the finished product? I'm, I'm always curious. Like, there's so much lead up into making a film and, of course, just writing it before any, any cameras roll. What was the experience and is it ever excruciating of seeing the finished product? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and the, the watching uh, the rough cuts get polished down and become a full movie and seeing the music change from scene to scene and how, you know, testing out different, different parts of that. It was a fascinating experience to watch that happen. And I think, look, I want to be clear. I think this movie is going to elicit. It, the final product is going to elicit a lot of passionate responses. It is this is not necessarily a consensus movie, and that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's a movie that is going to elicit a lot of emotions, but that's, in my view, that's what we need right now, a movie that makes us think. Is the tech character Mark Zuckerberg, do you think? I think it's kind of an amalgam of lots of these people, I, you know, I, and, and Mark Rylance, the, the actor who plays that, that character, is just so incredible. But I think you will see in that tech character a kind of amalgam of all these uh, larger-than-life tech guys, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, uh, Peter Thiel, whoever you think of when you think of a big tech titan, Jeff Bezos. I mean, they are all kind of an amalgam in there. Of And, and, and the amalgam is this idea uh, that, technology alone can save us. And I think that's another message in this movie that we, we seem to all be waiting for uh, some magical, mystical, technological solution uh, to various problems, especially climate change. But in fact, in a sense, we already have the technology on a lot of these problems. It's just, do we have the political will? Do we have the societal uh, willingness to work together to make the changes we need to make to use the existing technology we have now to fix these problems? That's what I think is lacking. We have like 30 seconds. Um, sometimes, though, don't you need a cat video? I mean, in other words, the world is so hor <laughs> horrific sometimes and we can be filled with such dread and frustration. Absolutely. The problem is, is that is that the cat video should be a momentary distraction. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be what we're consumed with all the time. I mean, there's a line in the movie is, you know, uh, there's a tagline uh, life without the stress of living like sometimes things aren't fun. Sometimes mm. things aren't enjoyable. Sometimes things shouldn't be uh, just uh, entertaining and distracting. And I think we've if the pendulum has swung, it has swung so far towards distraction and frivolity uh, that we oftentimes uh, ignore or or forget the what we need to actually be focused on. Journalist and screenwriter David Sirota of Denver, Don't Look Up, is now playing in select theaters. It will start streaming on Netflix December 24th.
The pandemic is like a big reshuffling, people questioning if where they are is where they want to be. And our own team here at CPR News isn't immune to that. Avery Lill, who's hosted this program with me for about the last three years, is moving on. And there's something fishy about her departure. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. So in addition to freelancing, I understand you might do some commercial fishing. Is that right? That is the goal. I came to Colorado from a small fishing town in Alaska's Bristol Bay, where I was doing reporting for a few years. And that bay has the largest commercial sockeye salmon run in the world. So I reported on it. I filled my freezer with the salmon. (laughs) I have so much salmon knowledge that lives rent-free in my brain. So after a couple of years of crouching over my computer in the pandemic, the appeal of getting on a boat and picking fish is enormous. Now, you said picking fish? Right, yeah. It's a gillnet fishery, so the salmon get caught in the net and you pick them out of the net. And wow. they go to the grocery store near you. Okay. Well, thanks for um, letting us into that space in your head. How do you think the pandemic affected your sense of the future? I think there is so much instability during the pandemic So I think it's taken away some of my fear of that. So I'm excited about freelancing. And I think one of the things that's kept me from doing that for a long time is just worrying about, well, what happens next? But in the last couple of years, that's just been the norm. So Mm. I feel like in some ways we've all gotten some tools for coping with that instability. And I feel excited about moving into that. That's so interesting. The pandemic has taught you to embrace the unknown is what I hear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Will you still make radio? Oh, audio, at least. <laughs> radio is such an old-fashioned term in the podcast days. But, you know. Yeah. Next week, I'm going to be guest hosting CityCast Denver. That's a daily news podcast here. And I'm hoping to continue in freelancing for podcasting, freelancing for audio. I love audio and I love journalism. So I'll definitely be sticking around. I would love to listen back to some of your favorite Colorado Matters pieces. Uh, where shall we begin? Let's go first to Casa Bonita. It was one of the first pieces that I recorded when I came to Denver. And uh, one of our producers just felt like that was important for me to understand Colorado as a place. So we went backstage with some of the performers to talk about what it's like to dive at Casa Bonita and to be a part of that entertainment. Here's Anthony Provost and Don Mestas talking about the pool. First of all, there's a lot of coins in the bottom of the pool. Just random, random stuff. I think we had a banana peel fall in there a couple of times that we had to get out. Chips. Chips. What do chips? Like, I mean, I'm imagining that you can't just, like, you can't pick it up. No, it's, uh, a lot of times it's weird because you'll come up from the dive pit and it'll be stuck to your face or something like that. That's the worst. Casmanita also has changed a lot in the pandemic and has been in the news. Yeah. Uh, What's next? You know, I've also done a lot of reporting with teens while I've been at CPR. Before the pandemic, we had a series, Teens Under Stress, to investigate the rising rates of teen suicide in Colorado. And we talked with teens about what they were facing. And then throughout the pandemic, I've kept up with a number of them. And one of my favorite stories I did, actually, a teen emailed us, Elijah Nacht, he goes to Embark Education, and he emailed us that we should be listening to what youth think about elections. And so I talked with them after the November presidential elections in 2020, him and some of his classmates. And there was a moment that's kind of stuck with me from our conversation about what these 12 and 13 year olds think might matter to them when they're voting in the future. How different is society going to be in 2028? Because who knows? Maybe it's all anarchy in 2028 and there's no voting. We don't know. 
Do things feel really unstable to you guys right now? Because saying it might be anarchy by 2028, that's huge. Yeah, it's felt very unstable. Yeah, honestly, it's so scary. Everything's so scary. And there's you can get go to one new site and they could be like totally neutral. Both sites are totally neutral. But there's always another opinion to make you trip off and just totally second guess yourself. I just really appreciated their honesty here, and it helped me just get a perspective of what it's like to be 12 and 13. I mean, it's confusing enough as adults to be watching a lot of the polarization and to hear just the emotional effect on 12 and 13-year-olds. It was eye-opening for me. And it's existential for them, of course. Well, it's the holidays, and I know your final pick of audio has a little something to do with that. It does. It's the holiday extravaganza. And that's something obviously that you've been doing for years. And I got to do it for the first time last year. We um, put together a show entirely recorded and streamed it on YouTube. And one of my favorite moments from that show was talking with Tanea Winder. She's a poet and she was remembering her grandmother who passed shortly before the holidays last year. Here's just the very end of her poem. Teach me how to reach the ones who are born already running. Teach me how to talk to the ones who need it most. Dear universe, gift me words that linger softly like dusk. There must be a phrase to contain wherever you go, whether or not you know where you've been or where you are going. I love the phrase, gift me words that linger. It reminds me of the legacy that our loved ones leave us with. Tell me about your grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother just is one of the most kindest, gentle human beings I know. And she just taught us so much. Like she taught us how to cook so many different things. Like she taught us how to knit and sew and just a lot about survival. I feel like she really gave me my voice and taught me what what love is. And are you going to be cooking recipes from her this holiday? I'm going to be attempting to cook recipes (laughs) from her. I have the cake down. I have the biscuits almost down, but... I'm going to keep trying to just honor everything she taught me. Didn't you record that in the foothills? I think I heard the birds in the background. I did. Yeah, that was in Chautauqua Park. Um, that was a place that Tanea picked us, a place that was important to her. And I'm just really thankful for the whole time that I've been here for every person who has shared somebody or something or some place that's important to them. Apart from, uh, it wasn't fishing. What was the verb you used? Picking? Picking fish. Okay. Apart from picking fish in Alaska, (laughs) do you think you'll stick around Colorado? I will. Yeah. Oh, lovely. I love Colorado. I have to say, uh, Avery Lil, in addition to being a a thoughtful journalist, you are one of the most gracious people I have ever met. And I just wish you the best in the next chapter and chapters. Thank you so much. I have loved working with you. You are so kind. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Monica Castillo, who's also moving on from CPR. I'm going to miss you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.